Today's reading is from Acts 8, verses 1 through 9. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And there was much joy in the city. And there was a man named Simon. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you. And good morning, Peoria. It's great to be here. Um, I got to I love Redemption Church. Uh, I love Arcadia, but I really love Peoria. I've said before, um, don't tell anybody at Arcadia, but if I wasn't working for Redemption Church, this is the congregation I would attend. And, and uh, it's just a great organization. You guys have done church really, really well. Josh does a wonderful job. Great music this morning. Um, obviously, Sean has been um, the relationship between us is very special. He's been instrumental in my life. He's, uh, Jackie and I uh, have two daughters, 24 and 20. He was instrumental in their life, and they turned out okay. So it's been, uh, it's, it's been great. So I am very pleased to be here this morning. Uh, we're going to jump right in. Please turn to Acts chapter 8. Uh, this is a benchmark point in the Acts story. It's a transition of sorts. If you remember from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples there, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, this begins the Samaria phase. And this is interesting, I think. Uh, one of the most challenging things I found about church work in the last 20 years, so 20th, late 20th century, early 21st century, is the the number of people who rely exclusively on church programs over and above the movement of the Holy Spirit in the faith community. And I think that's a problem. Here we see the church went out and did what God called them to do back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and, and was successful at doing it absent, absent any formal program, any committee or any human strategy. In fact, in fact, I would argue, based on the text all throughout Acts, that the catalyst of the church moving into phase two of the Acts 1 verse 8 mission is two things. The filling of the Holy Spirit and persecution. Persecution. Conrad Gempf, who is a New Testament scholar, writes this. Persecution, not deliberate policy, was the main reason for the first missionary thrust in the history of the church. So here you go. Based on the clear biblical success of persecution as a way to grow the church, shouldn't you and I start programs based around persecution? Wouldn't that be the way we should go? Yeah, a little awkward in here right now, isn't it? You should see your faces right now. Do you know what most church programs are built around? Do you know, seriously, you know why church programs are started and how they're built? It's built around felt needs, it's built around ease and comfort, and it's built around convenience and profitability. 
That's what we want. Are you ready for me to go back to Arcadia yet? I mean, it's just down the road. Another time zone to the east, but... (laughs) Now, I'm not saying that programs are necessarily bad. But I am saying that far too many people in the church think so highly of programs that the way we treat programs often gets in the way of the movement of the Holy Spirit. And some of us even begin to worship them as false gods, thinking that that's the purpose of the church. Leslie Newbegin, another great scholar, writes this, the measure of a church that prevails, overcomes, and succeeds is not its programs, but rather its genuine manifestation of a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what Paul says in all of his letters. How many times does Paul say in his letters, therefore, you are called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He comes back to that over and over and over again. And so with that cheery word of introduction, let's get started. Today we're going to work through the first 24 verses of uh, Acts chapter 8. I just wanted the reading to go through the first part of chapter 9 just to get Simon introduced. And once we get through that, I'm going to give you some what I call takeaways or things to think about as, as we leave. And here's the big idea of this passage today. And I may never say it as directly as this again, but this is really the big idea of this passage today. There is one way, there is one spirit, there is one God, and there is one gospel, and it cannot be bought with money, good works, or wonderful intentions. So let's go back, and I'm going to break this up and read through it and, and comment on it as we go. Verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. That's the hymn uh, or his, in verse 1 there. Um, we, we need to remember that Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, but at this time, he, he's wearing a different uniform. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And I will tell you that God caused this, because he needed the church to start going out on mission. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here's what happened if you were here last week and heard the sermon about uh, Stephen's speech to the ruling religious council in Jerusalem, to all the professional religious people in Jerusalem. Uh, Stephen, one of the deacons, Uh, that we were introduced to at the beginning of chapter 6, was proclaiming Jesus in the public square and in the courts, uh, the outer courts of the temple. He's proclaiming Jesus as the the Messiah, the Savior. And and he's doing so in a way that really frustrates the, uh, the professional religious people. And so they come to him and they say, is this charge true? And, Jesus, and, and Peter answers with this speech. And here's the thrust of his speech. He says, you guys are on the, the religious ruling council. You have now elevated to, to the status of gods, merely manifestations of God's work in you. You have elevated the nation of Israel, the temple, and the law of Moses. And you've made those things more important than who God is, his movement in the community, his movement in the world, and you've made them more important than the true Messiah of God, who is Jesus. And that's all, that's all Stephen says, and they stone him for it, because this is a threat to their power, their structure, and their influence, their status there. They're going to have to change if they recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so Saul was there, 
cheering on this execution of Stephen. And Saul later, as Paul, he admits in several of his letters how central he was to the persecution of the early church. So here you go. Some of us like to romanticize the Acts church. And we say things like, oh, I just wish we could be more like the Acts church. Okay, understand, you look at this right here. Here's the Acts church. Persecution, you got to leave your home and move somewhere else. And, oh, by the way, if you go back to Acts chapter 5 and you're a hypocrite, you might be treated the way Ananias and Sapphira were. Anybody in here a hypocrite? I'm a hypocrite. Kind of glad God's not moving in that way necessarily anymore. So that's the setup. And here we go. Philip now proclaims Christ in Samaria, verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed. And it says he went down to the city of Samaria. He actually went north from Jerusalem, but down means in ascent. It's actually a lower city than Jerusalem. He went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out in a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So let me give you the implications of Philip preaching in Samaria. Um, God's people, the nation of Israel, in the year 922 BC had a civil war. You can read about this in the Old Testament. And so they split and became the northern kingdom named Israel and the southern kingdom named Judah. The southern kingdom had, a ca- had, had as its capital Jerusalem and the northern kingdom, Israel, had as its capital city Samaria. 200 years later, in 722, the northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered by the Assyrians. Think Nineveh and Jonah. They come in and they conquer Israel. Their policy with conquered people was unlike Babylon's, which happened about 150 years later when they, when they came in and sacked Jerusalem and Judah in 605, 597, and 586. What the Babylonians did was they carried Jews back to Babylon, 800 miles away, and then gave them a place in their community to be Jews in their community. But they didn't promote any intermarrying. The Assyrians, though, in 722, they conquered Israel, and then they brought a bunch of Assyrians and other people into uh, Israel, into Samaria, and started getting them to intermarry. In other words, they, they, they made them racially mixed. So Samaria was a racially mixed group of Jewish and Gentile ancestry that were handled in the wake of this war, unlike the Babylonians handled the exile of 586. And so they were disdained by the Jews of Jerusalem, by the Jews of Judah. They were hated by them. They felt in Jerusalem they were the purebred Jews. They were God's pure people. John chapter 4 even tells us that the Jews had absolutely no dealings with the Samaritans. But it's not just that the Jews hated the Samaritans. Guess what? All the other people around there hated the Samaritans too. They were a despised people. They were a shunned people by everybody in the world. But Philip goes there and proclaims the resurrection of Jesus to them. And they were thrilled. And the church grows. Here's the key. Stephen's message, just prior to this, toppled the idea that God is bound by the temple, is only about the law, and is limited just to his people. So now Philip preaches in Samaria, 
which is the single most unlikely place that God's people would ever send missionaries because they don't think that they're worthy of any sort of redemption or salvation. And Philip had to go there with signs accompanying him in order to testify to the reality of the God of God in the gospel and and to counteract the tremendous influence of magic in the area, which we now begin to hear about in verses 9 through 13. Now Simon. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people, the, the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip and he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the, na- in the, and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Simon the magician. Magicians were very common in the first century Mediterranean culture all around there. But magicians were not like what we might think of magicians as today. Kind of they're they're entertainers and they have HBO specials and you go into auditoriums like this to see them perform. Uh, Mostly the reason you would become a magician in those days was to promote yourself as a god and to have a way of making money. And they were often thought to have demonic powers, not powers from God or from any God, and that's why it's considered magic. And, and, and magic was practiced in those days by both pagan and Jewish people, which, of course, God uh, considered this especially heinous. God speaks against uh, sorcery and witchcraft very clearly in the Bible. But the magicians had specific goals and purposes in mind when they did their work. Number one was they tried to heal people and give physical blessings. If you were, uh, if you were barren or infertile, you would go to a magician and let him do an incantation for you. They also, here you go, magicians also, if you paid them enough money, they would curse and harm, uh, they would try to curse and harm other people anonymously and without confrontation, kind of like the internet. They would also claim that they could foretell the future. And they had tools of the trade. Literally, there were like, they didn't call them this, but there were like seminaries for magicians back then. And so uh, Simon is probably carrying around a sack or a briefcase of some sort that had magic books and potions and incantations and different magical objects. And magicians often got together from different areas and they would trade with each other for money. They would trade tricks and insights and power. As long as you weren't staying in the area to compete, they would do that. But, but, the very top priority, the main point of a magician is self-promotion and self-glorification. Simon said, I am great. That's what Simon says. I am great. So hopefully you can see the contrast here that Luke is specifically trying to get the audience of his book to see. Simon was all about himself. That's just normal. That's like like today. Broadcast yourself. That was Simon. Philip says Jesus is great. Simon is self-centered. Philip is gospel-centered. But, and, and, and then we look at verse 13, that last verse there in that paragraph, and we do get some encouragement there. It said that Simon believed. 
seems as though we have a convert. But now, this last paragraph that we're about to read, we're going to find out later that Simon might have believed only because he was in it for the methodology and potential profits for his magic shtick. We could call him, here you go, in today's language, we might call him an early adopter. He saw Jesus as a business opportunity. And this is not the last time in history that someone has tried to use Jesus and or the gospel for personal, selfish, and profitable gain. And so now we get to the really uh, naughty part of the story. Naughty meaning not N-A-U-G-H-T-Y, but K-N-O-T-T-Y. The tough, difficult part of this story, this last, longer paragraph. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God and that there were converts there, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Did you hear that last song that we, we sang? It's all grace. It's all grace. Nothing that we bring to the table can get, get us the gift of God. I love how that song was used today for this passage. Peter continues with Simon. He says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore... Um, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This is pretty direct by Peter, isn't it? Is this kind of some of the conversations you all have in your small groups and RCs? Is this how it goes there? Some tough stuff here from Peter. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, this is a strange answer. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So look at verse 14. Even in the diaspora, the, the, the way everybody was dispersed from the church in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem maintained a measure of authority over the church at large. So they sent Peter and John to see if the conversion of these, in their eyes, these heathens, these pagans, was legitimate. And you look at verses 15 through 17, and I've heard this so often taught, and I would tell you incorrectly, that there is somehow a second blessing for the Christian, a second baptism, a second salvation that is higher and above and better than the original salvation when the Holy Spirit comes to you and changes your heart. I have a saying about things like this. It's what I would call yet another time of adventures and missing the point. You're missing the point here if you think this is what this is about. We need to remember that primarily, not always, but primarily, the book of Acts is a book of description, not prescription. And this is the only time we have something like this happening in the book of Acts. It doesn't happen again. It doesn't happen when Saul is converted. It doesn't happen with any of the conversions of Saul, the way there's this two-stage supposed salvation. But here's what's happening. As the movement of God moved out of Jerusalem, so this is a new era in the church. As they moved out of Jerusalem, God wanted the leaders 
in Jerusalem to see for themselves that the people outside of his nation, the people outside of his people, the people outside of his temple, the people outside of his law of Moses were being saved so that the leaders in Jerusalem would not somehow reject the salvation and the movement of God beyond Judah, especially based on their bias and prejudice. Especially in a place like Samaria, where it would have been so easy for the leaders of Jerusalem to hear about this and go, nah, not those people. This can't possibly be real. So they sent John and Peter down there to make sure that this was legitimate. And the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them to show them that it was legitimate. So unlike a lot of the other verses and passages in Acts, we can't turn this into some major doctrine about the Holy Spirit. This passage isn't so much about the Holy Spirit as it is about God's grace in helping the leaders in Jerusalem to understand what's going on. This was meant to help the leaders in Jerusalem understand the the depth of God's love and salvation. To be able to understand the breadth of God's love and salvation. To be able to understand the reaches, the unending reaches of God's grace and his mercy. To understand that he is God and he does not need a temple or a nation or a moral code to do his work. What he needs is the proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and raised to come again. That's what God is looking for. The proclamation of Jesus. So the Jerusalem leaders get the verification they came for, but now the passage turns to Simon and his issue. Simon wants this power for himself, for all the wrong reasons, and he tries to access this power in an extraordinarily inappropriate way. But understand, Simon is merely acting in accordance with his magician DNA. I'm not making an excuse for Simon. I'm just saying this is what Simon would do. Simon the magician would do. And it shows that Simon may have regarded the gospel not as a gospel of salvation, but as a gospel uh, that gives you just access to the power of God so that you can make money and do other things. And he is rightly rebuked by Peter. I'll tell you, this, think about this rebuke and how sharp it is. In some ways, I don't understand the church today. What I found in the church today, and I'm not talking about um, just the church in general, the universal church. I'm even saying sometimes we see this in redemption. In many people's eyes, it is considered an offense, an offense to confront people in their sin or in their foolish thinking. To hurt someone's feelings is the new unforgivable sin. It is grievous and heinous. We're not allowed to do that. And then we talk about love. I got to tell you something. If you're really into genuine love, genuine love does not allow somebody that you're in relationship or community with to self-destruct without saying something to them, without confronting them. That's what genuine love is. The gospel specifically calls us to call out with grace and truth. With grace and truth. Jesus is filled with grace and truth. Not 50-50, but 100 and 100. But we are called to call out sin and foolishness. That's what we do. And then you look at those verses 20 through 23. Peter's rebuke, like I said, is sharp. It's to the point, but it's also comprehensive. And it's here that we find out that Simon's belief in verse 13 may not have been of the saving kind. Now, I'm not here to tell you whether Simon was saved or not. I'm not very sure about that. 
Uh, the scholars are mostly dubious on this point too, although I'll, I'll tell you, if you took a survey of the, of the commentaries in Acts, probably more would lean toward the idea that Simon is not really saved. I don't think that's the point that is getting that, 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 that they're trying to get at, though, that Luke is trying to get at. Simon's belief was in the power of God for his purposes, but not in the purpose of the gospel for salvation. And verse 24 is ambiguous. Luke, I think, purposely leaves it ambiguous. He may not have repented. Simon may not have repented. Isn't it odd? Peter says, you need to pray. And what does Simon say? Uh, You pray for me. Simon doesn't pray himself. You see, Simon, it seems, wants to keep this gospel thing at arm's length. Now, I'm venturing outside of what scripture tells us, but based on my experience, I feel like maybe this is where Simon is going. Simon wants the benefits of the gospel, but he does not want the sacrifice of the gospel. That sound like us today? Genuine salvation is never, ever, 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 ever at arm's length. Believers press in. They get involved. They repent. They submit. They learn and they grow. You heard Vincent talk about that here. So here are the takeaways that I think we can get from this passage. There's three of them today. And I want you to think about these and pray about these. Here's number one. It's what I call in person. The importance of genuine relationship and community in person. Notice that they sent Peter and John. I, I have a meta, this is metaphorical only, but I call this genuine flesh on flesh relationship and community, not digital. Okay? Now I know some of you are like, well, but they had no other way. They had to send somebody, they had no other way. No, they had another way. They had letters. The Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is filled with letters. They had, they had letters. Letters were the 35 AD analog version of Facebook, texting, Snapchat, Twitter, and email. Now, some of you right now, well, the old coot's really reaching for that one, isn't he? Okay, here you go. Some of you know this, but, and I'm not saying this to exalt myself. I'm just telling you what my context is. Uh, in addition to leading churches for the last 20 years, two of them, and most recently Redemption Arcadia, I have also uh, taught at the college and at the master's level um, human communication theory. I have a second degree in human communication theory. I study this stuff. I read the research reports. And I know how exciting um, this... I I was around... Listen, here you go. I am so old that I was around when we had one phone in the house and it was a rotary phone, okay? And, And we had a party line. Do you know what a party line is? Okay, there were 10 of us in the same neighborhood on the one. We didn't even have a dedicated line in our house. I didn't know what a microwave oven is. And here you go. I don't want to go back. I love today's technology. I love these. I love it. I love it. But we really need to learn to be careful. Um, uh, we, we don't often quote Louis C.K. in church. I understand that. But he was on Conan once, and, and what he said was true. He, he says, you know, we, we live in a culture today that says, hey, you get to do this thing, and the way our culture responds is this. Well, I'm going to do it then. He says, maybe we should think it through a little bit more before we just jump in with both feet and start doing it. Some of you remember the original Jurassic Park movie. When Jeff Goldblum, 
His character says to the guy who invented Jurassic Park, he said that famous line. He said, you were so busy trying to figure out if you could do this, you never asked if you should do this. Listen to what Thomas Friedman writes. And let me tell you something. Thomas Friedman, he loves this stuff. He loves the new technology. He's also really smart about this new technology. His most recent book, I highly recommend it. It's very helpful. It's called Thank You for Being Late. Some of you who are perpetually late will appreciate that book. Anyway, here's what he writes. Every new technology is used for some time before it is completely understood. Listen to this line. There is always a lag time between function and consequences. And that lag time is not just years. Sometimes it is decades. We are today in that lag time with digital communication and social media, and we cannot be sure that it's all good. In fact, we are certain there are going to be some largely challenging consequences coming down the road, and some of them are here even now. The biggest challenge may be that we are more connected than ever before, but that hyper-connectivity does not translate into true community. Getting our actual faces together is still better and more genuine community than Facebook. Now, Friedman, like I said, he loves this technology and who also would say this. He's not, he, he, is not, he does not consider himself a religious person. He grew up in a religious context. He's not religious now. But he also concludes this at the end of his book. The most important things in life in the next several years will be things that we cannot download. That's really interesting. And then he says this. In fact, temples, mosques, and churches, which have genuine community, will be more important than they have been for the last several hundred years. Do you understand the opportunity we have with the gospel right now? There has never been more darkness, and when does light shine best? In the midst of darkness. Reed Shukart, who is a professor of communication at Wheaton, writes this. Listen to this. This is pure gold. The church's true calling in a technological society is to do the slow, difficult work of embodying God's love one soul at a time. Embodied love is profoundly inconvenient, painful, and even excruciating. But the opposite of love is not hatred. It is efficiency. That's good stuff right there. And we need to consider that in person, flesh on flesh. Here's the second thing. Fake gospels hurt people and distract community. Fake gospels hurt people and distract community. Fake gospels, every one of them, is always, they're always centered in self. Self-promotion, self-exaltation, self-profit. The real gospel is centered in God and his son, Jesus Christ. God's love, God's sacrifice, God's power, God's forgiveness, God's mercy and grace, and God's sovereignty. Here's the irony of this. The real gospel is what's best for us, but is rooted in who God is. Fake gospels lead to our destruction, and they are rooted in our own self-centeredness and self-righteousness. That's ironic. And this is what was happening to Simon here. He wants this gospel, but for all the wrong reasons. He wants it for his power, his profit, his exaltation, his status. Virtually every fake gospel there is has been born out of self-centered consumerism, narcissism, and entitlement. Daryl Bach 
who has written, I would argue, the definitive commentary in the 21st century on the book of Acts. He writes this. The greatest detriment to our spirituality is an attitude of entitlement. In addition, any gospel that isn't the real gospel of Jesus, that he died on a cross so that you and I could be saved, and that he was raised from the tomb so that you and I could live new lives as new creations, any gospel that isn't that gospel ends up as a distraction to every faith community that it enters. Peter had to deal with this. And in doing so, he's taking time away from those who are truly submitted to Jesus and who needed shepherding. Simon becomes a sideshow that leadership must deal with and really benefits no one. And that's what happens in today's churches. When people bring a yes, Jesus, but also this, or a not Jesus, but this gospel into the church. That's when the shepherd has to become the protector of the flock. There is one gospel. It's Jesus on the cross, resurrected and coming again. And there is only one name under heaven by which we might be saved. And that is Jesus Christ. Amen? And that leads, I think, really well to the last point. This is great news. This is great news. The real gospel is for all people, regardless of previous and proposed barriers, real or imagined. Uh, I think one of the worst things that we can do, and I've suffered this myself and made other people suffer when I do it, one of the worst things that Christians can do is to believe that we can do God's thinking for him. And, and that's what we do when we begin to fit people into categories. When we begin to think about people as Samaritans. Now, I know this can be really hard. Here's, here's what I know that we believe about ourselves. The, the, the psychological tests through Harvard demonstrate this very clearly. You and I believe that we're, we're egalitarian. We are tolerant. We don't have any bias. We don't have any prejudices. There is, no, there is not one ounce of ethnocentrism in anyone. We believe that about ourselves. But the research is clear. Human beings are tribal beings. We are tribal We like our tribe. We like our culture. We like our ways. We like our people. We are ethnocentric to the core. And yet from the beginning, since the the fall in Genesis 3, God has pushed against this notion completely. God has selected the most unlikely people to be his people and then has always commanded those unlikely people to be his light and his blessing to the rest of the people and the rest of the nations in the world. It is, in fact, what got the Israelites into so much trouble in the Old Testament. They're called to be a blessing to others and a light to the other nations, and they refuse to do it. They turned inwardly on themselves. And then, and then we get to the very end of this thing, we get to the, the New Jerusalem, which I'm looking forward to, and it's described in, in chapter 22 this way. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Here you go. This is the... This is the clause I love. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You know, when we start doing God's thinking for him, the nations need healing. We're responsible for this. 
And yet God is going to heal the nations. He's going to bring us together the way, the way that created order in Genesis 1 and 2 were supposed to be. He's going to bring us together in the new Jerusalem as a healed and unified one people. Uh, let me close by saying this. Redemption Church, all ten congregations, we have, we have seven core values and shared culture. Three of those. We don't do anything without making sure that they, whatever it is we're doing fits those seven core values and shared culture. Three of them speak specifically to this passage today. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, redemption is a church that is gospel-centered and outward-focused. We are not going to collapse in on ourselves because we have the good news. If the good news is real and genuine and the gospel is real and genuine, it's going to force us to go outward. And we're going to be a church on mission, loving our communities and loving people. The second thing is is that redemption is a church that believes that there are no little people and no little places. There are no Samarias as far as we're concerned. We will go wherever God calls us to take the gospel. And usually it's to places that we wouldn't necessarily pick. And that's good. And the third is this, and you've heard it all this morning already. Redemption insists that all of life is all for Jesus. We do not compartmentalize our faith in Jesus. In fact, we don't even say that our faith uh, infiltrates and integrates with everything we do. We say that our faith leads everything we do. In the marketplace, at home, in community, in relationship, everywhere. All of life is all for Jesus. Let me pray, and Stephen's going to come and lead us into our time of of reflection after you and I have had a chance for two minutes to spend some time in prayer and silence. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We pray that we would pray for the filling of your spirit, that we would pray for your wisdom, and that we would do what Paul calls us to do in Ephesians 5, that we would submit our will to your will. That is where wisdom lies. God, we ask that in Jesus' name, and it's by your Holy Spirit we come to you. Amen.